0: But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americans, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and
1: I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our time.
0: Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. In today's episode, Paul and Ritchie discuss King Leopold II of Belgium, who was known for his ruthless exploitation of the Congo Free State during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this podcast, we delve into the atrocities committed by Leopold and his administration in the name of profit and power. We explore how Leopold's pursuit of ivory and rubber led to the enslavement, mutilation and murder of millions of Congolese people and examine the role of colonialism in enabling such cruelty and discuss the ways in which the Congo Free State was used as a laboratory for European imperialism. So without further ado, let's get into it.
1: All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the History Motion podcast and today we're talking about, you know, one of the most controversial figures in history with King Leopold of Belgium and I think Richie, we've, we've kind of talked here about how interesting this topic will be because we know a lot of the dark sides of the free state of the Congo and all the terrible things that happened there, which we'll get into in, into some detail, but we're really kind of really interested in the decision itself that he's making here by not only having a colony, which is essentially par for the course at the time, but to have a, a, a colony that is just so brutal and treats its indigenous population essentially like animals and basically slaves at at this point. And, you know, what he thought he was, if like, did he think he could get away with it? Did he think that this was something that the world was going to sit by and be like, yeah, that's fine. You know, we, we're, we're okay with all this stuff, especially with like, this is 30, 40 years after the U S civil war is fought to end slavery to, to kind of continue down that legacy as a major, Christian Western European power is really not something that I think many of those states would, would be okay with. And it just goes to who he was and why did he make this decision? So I think, I don't know, kind of know what your thoughts are initially as we kind of get into it, but I think when we kind of had a few initial chats about this, it was, you know, what again, it came back to like, what was he thinking? Why did he, why did he do this? And, you know, it is a, at a very dark point in, in history.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think there's a couple things that like just off the hop that kind of struck out to me, one being a lot of the themes around colonialism and imperialism are, are evident here, right? For slavery, you know, this, this occupier and occupied state kind of relationship, which are tropes that are very consistent across this particular period of time when you talk about, you know, the scramble for Africa or the carving up of Africa. But what sets this one apart, you know, for me was just the degree of violence and degradation of what it meant to be, you know, um, an occupying force. And I think that's kind of what my initial take was. And I think that take was actually emboldened Mm -hmm. (laughs) after doing the research because it, it was much darker than I had expected. And yeah, I think that's the part that kind of stuck with me after I'd completed the research in preparation for this, for this episode, which is just, yeah, it was happening across Africa. You know, there's a lot of commonalities across colonizing forces. There's always this kind of weird conversation about, you know, quote unquote, who was nicer in terms of (laughs) colonial powers, which I think is always kind of this weird, you know, discussion that um, I remember taking place in history class. But I think for this particular example, it's just the degree of atrocity that occurred is what really just shakes you at your core, you know, and it goes back to that sentiment or question that we kind of posed, which was why, why so cruel? What was the point of doing this with such a, with such depravity? I think that's the word. I think that's like kind of the word that I kept kind of going back to. Yeah, that's something that kind of stuck with me doing this research.
1: Yeah, and it's we talked a little bit too, right, of like the why, but also like even just like what was the finishing point? Where did he think this was going to stop? Did he just think like, I'm going to suck as much resources out of the Congo as I can and then just move on without any issues? Was it going to be a rebellion? Did he think he could do it forever? So it's it's a lot of interesting pieces that I think, you know, we will get into in a lot more detail, but I think we need to start with the state of Belgium itself and for a lot of people who kind of, you know, look back at history, to, for me at least coming in, it was like Belgium just kind of shows up on the world stage and kind of going back to, to where they came from is, you know, relatively recent. So in 1815, Napoleon is defeated at Waterloo, and there's a section around Brussels, which is now the capitals of Belgium, that essentially comes under Dutch control as under the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. But about 15 years later, there's the Catholic Belgiums. Belgians and the Protestant Dutch. And this is pretty common at that time where the Protestant Christians kind of banding together versus the Catholic dominated countries. And there's a lot of friction between the two. And what happens here is the Catholics essentially rebel trying to say, we don't want to be ruled by a Protestant government. And so the major European powers step in the United Kingdom, France, Spain, Germany, and they all kind of make a decision that, all right, we will allow a Belgian state to exist but under the condition that it is a neutral state and will always be neutral. And so the reason I think they come down this line of thinking is you have this new state in Europe that's being created and there's new states aren't being created in, in Germany or certainly not in Germany, in Europe very often. And so, you know, for the French and the British and the Germans all fighting over who has influence over Belgium could lead to a war and could lead to some, some pretty nasty outcomes. So they kind of say like, all right, Belgium, you can exist, but you're not really going to have much say in... Major international decisions like us, you know, big boys at the table, right? So mm-hmm. that kind of sets the stage, I think for, you know, where, where kind of Belgium is and they're definitely a, a small fish in a really big pond and definitely don't have the status and the prestige of these, these other countries, which we'll get into kind of why that matters in a little bit. But the more interesting thing is this country wasn't really created with a, with a royal family that came from, you know, traditional Belgian people. Who rose up, got power and became in charge. Mm. They, the European powers basically looked within their royal families around, uh, around Europe and, and went to Germany and picked a, a prince and said, you're now the king of Belgium. And that's kind of how the royal family started, which is just a weird kind of thought of, you know, it's like someone, it's like being in the US and it's like, yeah, we've got a, an Austrian king is now going to be president because <laughs> he's a, from the royal lineage. So I think that's maybe sets the stage, Richie, for, you know, where that royal family kind of starts off in Belgium and and how King Leopold comes onto the stage as the King of Belgium.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting, especially when you look at his ties to the royal family or several European royal families. But yeah, so King Leopold II is, you know, the focal point of this particular podcast. And before I get into his bio, you know, again, as you were speaking, Paul, something came to mind. And I know typically our podcasts kind of follow a pretty standard format where we look at a leader a decision and we kind of go back and forth as to whether it was the right decision or not and i think this is one of those examples where you know we can unequivocally agree even you know off the hop without much research We're like yeah we don't um this is not necessarily one of those decisions that you know there is anything to agree on because it was so atrocious mm-hmm. in terms of what actually happened during his reign and you know our goal is to kind of better understand what was his like psychopathy or rationale for this, for, you know, for going in with this level of deprivation to kind of enslave the entire Congolese population, which, you know, we'll get into, but yeah, just something that kind of came to mind and just for for our viewers and listeners to kind of better understand why we took this particular, you know, leader, you know, and this particular decision of, of the cruelty that was, you know, put forth to the enslaved population. Uh but yeah, King Leopold II, he was born on April 9th, 1835 in Brussels, Belgium, and he was the second king of the Belgians. And he reigned from 1865 to 1909. He was the eldest son of Leopold I, who was the first, you know, monarch of Belgium. And uh, his mom was uh, Louise Marie of Orléans as we kind of were stating, you know, Leopold II was a very controversial figure in European history and still is today, mainly because of his role in the Congo and the colonization of the Congo free state. But to kind of loop back Paul to your initial point about this kind of selection process of who is going to, you know, rule Belgium, the ties to royalty here are quite fascinating. So King Leopold II was related to several Royal European families, His father, Leopold I of Belgium, was a German prince and the first king of the the Belgians. His mother was Princess Louise of Orléans, a member of the French royal family. Leopold II's sister was Prince Charlotte of Belgium, who married the Archduke Maximilian of Austria, who later became the Emperor of Mexico. Leopold II's niece was Princess Stephanie of Belgium. She married Crown Prince Rudolf of Austria who was heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire and additionally, you know, this is probably the most interesting at least from my take, that Leopold II's cousin was Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom as his mother and Queen Victoria's uh Queen Queen Victoria's mother were sisters. So you can kind of see how interconnected the the ruling and royal families are across Europe at this time.
1: And I think it's fascinating, right, just, like, even from a place like Belgium, French-speaking, Catholic, to the United Kingdom, English, predominantly Protestant, and to have the royal family, like, you have Queen Victoria and Leopold's mother being sisters. I understand back then, like, you know, marriages were more for diplomatic reasons and stuff, but the fact that it's just so interconnected, like, you listed off, like, Austria, even Mexico, like, this isn't just contained to Europe, this is contained to... Anywhere that needs a royal family, you must come from this lineage, within these small, select kind of groups. And I think it's, it's like a level of like nobility, but almost even more selective than we'd seen in the past. Because I think here you're starting to see at this time like corporations being created. There's more democratic yep. systems. At the end of the day, there's still this level of you know monarchy that doesn't really seem to go away. Um, it almost mm-hmm. gets more concentrated than like, when we were talking about Joan of Arc where you had the nobility and the clergy having all the power and the king ultimately, and, and then there was mostly peasants. But here it's even like, not only, like back then you could see like someone could rise up and become king. Here it's more, you have to be part of this royal lineage. And if you don't, you don't have any power and any say, so you might as well move on. But I think it's yeah. just totally fascinating on you know where the world is at this time, which I think can maybe lead us into... Um, Know, Africa and, and itself and what the European powers are are maybe thinking of doing here so I think when we look at um, Europe itself and and some of the colonies that are that are around we see the co- the colonization of the Americas happening so that kind of started in with Christopher Columbus moving up for about a few hundred years with the Spanish Portuguese the English the French all trying to stake their claim in the Americas the difference with that type of colonization was it was more to it was definitely a piece of like exploiting resources, taking gold and, and spices and all that stuff back, but also like creating settlements and creating cities and, and all that kind of stuff where Africa is a little bit different because if you, there's a great image, I think I, I think it's on the Wikipedia page for the scramble for Africa and it shows Africa in the 1880s or sorry, yeah, 1880. And it's like pretty much either like half of the country is not even mapped. Nobody even knows what's there. The rest are like small African kingdoms. And then you see, like, I think the Portuguese have a small area. The English, I think, are there. The French are just getting into Algeria. But the rest is pretty barren. And -hmm. then you look at 1913, right before the World War One breaks out, and the entire continent is claimed by some European power outside of the country of Ethiopia, which is, like, the only one to not be colonized. So in a matter of, like, 35 years, the country goes from, like, a minor amount of colonization to the whole thing being colonized. So it's a very just, like, staggering, like, oh, my goodness, like, how did we get to this point? And I think like it all kind of, we looked at Africa and for years, like the Portuguese just kind of had trading posts set up and things like that, but they really didn't go inland at all. They just kind of sat on the outskirts, traded with typically the slave trade was a, was a big piece where kingdoms within Africa would round up slaves from, you know, different kingdoms that they were at war with and then bring them to the coast. And then they would trade Mm -hmm. with the Portuguese for firearms and medicines and whatever else that, that might've been. And that was kind of the, the way it went for a few hundred years until we start to see some of this movement into to Africa and it's is a really different type of of colonialism as well where we're starting to see massive corporations basically not they not only do they run the area they are the governing body for the area so we saw it a little bit in in like Canada for example with the Hudson's Bay Company Running the fur trade, but also being charged mm-hmm. with taking that, that area and, and governing it. The British East India Company as well running the Dutch East India Company. Yeah. yeah. There's so many. Yeah. There's so many, right? And this is just now being, you know, hy- hyper driven and, and really exploding up. So we'll start to see a little bit of that come into play once we kind of get into King Leopold and, and his claims into Africa. Um, and then there's another piece too of like when they're starting to come into Africa is we have to kind of get a scale of, of how big Africa you know, actually is. And I'm just looking at your, your reaction there, Richie. It's unbelievably massive place. So there's a great mm-hmm. website that I would encourage all the listeners to go to. I think it's called like, it's the true size or something like that. Basically it's a, a, it has a map of the world and you can drag countries around and it shows like their relative size based on other countries. And the reason for that is you have a globe where around the equator, the kind of, the land is stretched out more, but when you get mm-hmm. up to the poles, it's a lot smaller. But when you put that on a square map, The countries at the poles look a lot larger than the ones at the equator. So you can take, you know, the Congo is a great example, and you move it up over Europe or even over Canada or over the U.S., and you see actually how large of a country it is. And just to put things into perspective, Belgium today is 30,000 square kilometers. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is 2.34 million square kilometers, which is about 75 times larger. So, it's not a one for one as how it was for King Leopold at the time, but it just shows you like just how large of a place this is, and Africa's about twenty percent of all the land on earth, three times bigger than Europe, almost twice the size of Russia, just to, again, we know how big Russia is, right you know add another Russia and a maybe less than another Russia on top of that, it just kind of shows you how large of a place this is, and all the resources and all the potential economic opportunity that these European powers are eyeing. And before maybe I flip back to you, Richie, on getting into King Leopold before we kind of get into the, the free state of the Congo is we need to talk about the diversity of Africa at this time. Mm. So we see this period in history where we look at Africa, we look at Europe, and we see Europeans colonize Africa, and we kind of see Africa as this mono, monolithic culture. And it could not be more different than than that so if we look at like the north african countries today so we have morocco algeria tunisia egypt libya these are arab states essentially they are predominantly muslim they speak arabic very very different than if you were to go to say a country like ghana or or the congo different religions different languages especially at this time there hasn't been that french influence or english influence into africa so all these little kingdoms are speaking whether it's swahili or different local languages and so there's hundreds and hundreds of ethnic groups within africa so when the europeans arrive this isn't there isn't a whole like hey let's band band together as you know I'm doing air quotes africans to fight off these european invaders some african kingdoms and kings kind of look at this and say this is an opportunity for us what if we you know, work with the Portuguese and become very wealthy and ally with them to defeat this other ethnic group that was in the kingdom next door to us to gain their land and become much more powerful. For some Africans, it works out quite well. They get a lot more power. But for a lot of Africans, especially those in the Congo, it's a terrible, terrible thing for the Europeans coming in because now it's not just them fighting off internal struggles, there's also these juggernaut superpowers that are coming in with all of their wealth and all of their technology and, you know, really coming in and kind of subjugating the population in a variety of different ways. So I think it's, it's just, that's maybe just a kind of a quick overview of what these countries are kind of eyeing when they look at Africa. But I think before we get into kind of the, the scramble for Africa and, and, you know, the Belgian and Belgian Congo, I think it's kind of important maybe to jump back to to where King Leopold is at this time. And what is, what is he seeing as, you know, all of these European powers are starting to, to stake their claim and, you know, whether it's the Africa, the Americas, Asia, you know, what, what's kind of he's seeing at at this point?
0: Yeah, no, I think, yeah, great couple of points there. And maybe just for our listeners, uh, uh, an interesting parallel, you know, Paul and I are both in Canada. (laughs) And I think, you know, your point about Africa kind of often being seen as this monolithic culture. But in reality, it's this um place of diverse tribes and cultures competing against each other or working in collaboration with each other, depending on, you know, tribal affiliations and or, you know, trading networks or relationships. A lot of parallels between, you know, what typically happens during a colonization project if we look at Canada, right, the British and French using indigenous tribes against each other or playing them off of each other for their own mutual benefit. So I think there's a lot of interesting parallels there that not only apply to Africa, but other colonizing projects and how indigenous groups are kind of, I'm not going to say used, but are kind of integrated into the geopolitical you know, strategy that is going on or it's Mm -hmm. at play at the ground
1: level. I think used actually might be almost the correct term here is Mm -hmm. in some ways, like I just in some of my research I was doing, like you would hear stories of Portuguese or the Belgians or whoever it was rolling into a, speak to an African king and saying, hey, can you, if you sign this document, we'll give you, you know, whether it was like special, like there was, I think a story of like giving someone silk. He was guaranteed to get some level of like clothing every month. And he's basically in exchange for that signed away rights to, like, all the mining and everything within his kingdom, which, again, for somebody who's just known their kingdom, you know, is not educated in, like, the economic theory of the day, doesn't understand, like, the industrial might of what is about to show up on his doorstep and the potential within that land, they're essentially being used in the sense of, and the word primitive is used, and I I don't think it's, you know, there's some dark connotations with that word, but I think in terms of, like, from a technological perspective, I think primitive is is probably a, a correct term just in the sense of, you know, they're coming in with firearms and steam power and all that versus, you know, we're still looking at more of like a, a feudalistic society with heavy, de- heavily dependent on manual labor and, and slaves and, and, you know, farming and things like that. And that level of automation hasn't come yet. And so it's just this dichotomy of we know what the potential of this land is and we know what we can do with it versus this king who maybe. This is a, this is a step up for him, but he doesn't realize like, you know, that what he's signing away. And then again, like when he signs it away, what is he going to do? He's, he can't fight back militarily. That's just the way it's going to be, right? So it's definitely used in, in some cases and it's definitely not coming in for, Hey, let's, let's make this the best for, for all Africans. It's how can we exploit as much as we can without going too far to incite a war or some sort of rebellion? No, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a good segue into
0: kind of a bit more background and context into, into Leopold's world uh, at this point in time. So we'll, we'll turn it back to to Leopold II and then kind of look at the early years of his reign, which, you know, based on what I read, it was focused mostly on modernizing Belgium and strengthening its economy, given that it's a young nation. Um, you know, it's funny when people say he was a supporter of the arts and sciences. I always find that's kind of a low bar <laughs> for monarchs and leaders. It's like, oh, that's great. But under his rule, Brussels did become a major cultural center. And he was a major patron of the sciences and funded several expeditions to Africa, including the Stanley Expedition, which explored the Congo River. And I think this is a very, very interesting kind of segue because it really touches on those themes of exploitation and manipulation. So... The Stanley Expedition was led by a journalist and explorer named Henry Morton Stanley. He was hired by King Leopold II to explore and map the Congo River in Central Africa. Uh, The expedition was officially known as the International African Association Expedition. Uh, We'll talk about the International African Association shortly, but it was essentially kind of seen, quote-unquote, as this philanthropic organization that was founded and funded by King Leopold II. The expedition itself took place between 1874 and 1877 and was essentially aimed at opening up the Congo region to European commerce and colonization. Stanley led a team of Europeans and Africans traveling overland from the east coast of Africa to the Congo River. You know, along the way, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they had to endure many hardships, disease, hunger, hostile encounters with local tribes, dealing with, um, you know, just a, a boatload of sickness as well. Uh, but once they reached the Congo River, uh, Stanley's team who had traveled by boat to explore it and its tributaries had essentially created these detailed maps and collected scientific data on the region. Uh And, you know, that's where they started to get a sense of how many natural resources were available in the, in the, in the Congo at this time. Uh, so they were able to establish some training posts initially and negotiate some trees with the local chiefs. The expedition was considered a success in terms of its scientific and commercial goals. But it also set the stage for, you know, the brutal colonization exploitation of the Congo under King Leopold II's rule. And this seems to be a bit of a trope with this kind of, let's call it these, you know, explorative expeditions that colonizers take and how they kind of manipulate indigenous populations in in, in different parts of the world. Now there are some stories of 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 uh stanley kind of screwing around with the indigenous populations and kind of using their technology against them one so story kind of um demonstrates the power of of european men essentially hands one of the tribesmen a gun with a blank shot in it and says You won't be able to kill me with this. So he shoots something dead, like an animal or, you know, something that's close by and turns over the rifle. But before he turns over the rifle, he exchanges live ammo for blank ammo. So the blank ammo, you know, will sound and look like a shot has been fired, but essentially it's not actually shooting anything. So he plays this kind of trick on the, you know, indigenous tribesmen and they fall for it. Obviously because they've never seen anything like it. And there's countless other examples of kind of, you know, telling them that what was it? Uh, Because, you know, at this time in Europe, they've, they've have a much better understanding of lunar cycles. So they can predict what the moon's going to be like in three days. So they tell, you know, the tribesmen that they, that they counter that, you know, in three days time, there's going to be a full moon. And, you know, their prediction is right because they're, they have that accuracy and, and scientific knowledge behind them so they're able to manipulate and exploit based on their technological advancements right from the very beginning to kind of establish that sense of superiority over 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 the local peoples
1: yeah it's kind of it's a sad kind of reality but like you can kind of understand it like for someone like stanley he's he's got a job to do he's been tasked to get these treaties and also survive, right? This is not a a walk in the park. This, You know, there's been many, we hear about these, you know, expeditions into the Amazon and into, you know, the Congo itself. It's very, you know, nobody really knows what's going on there from Mm -hmm. at least a European perspective and being able to win over some of these tribes. It's kind of essential for survival, but yeah, it does seem a little bit, it almost seems like cheating and a little bit dirty and some, but at the end of the day, like, why wouldn't he use those tools that are in his tool yeah, belts? But, yeah. and I think that's, you know, again, a theme that we're going to see is this superior technology and superior kind of technological and scientific understanding of the world. This is going to be used, you know, then again and again to, to kind of push their, I guess, European rule over, you know, these different areas in Africa. Yeah. It's interesting too, right? Like I know you'd mentioned previously that typically a lot of the,
0: the trade posts were coastal in nature, right? This kind of network of coastal trading posts with European powers. And then you see a shift, right? In the later part of the century where, no, we want to get into the interior of Africa. And now you have various European powers, you know, this is the scramble or the carve up of Africa, however you want to kind of title it with this, this new interest and effort put forth to get into the interior of africa map it understand it understand what's available there in terms of resources understand you know the population makeup things of that nature to really better understand how they can leverage what's going on there <laughs> to to their advantage
1: yeah and i think part of the reason we move from this coastal element to the interior of africa it's really purely from the te- technological perspective. We have steam power now, for example. You can get up and down the Congo river quite quickly than you could have a hundred years ago. Yep. The telegraph is now a thing. Railways are a thing. You can build these s- levels of infrastructure that, you know, you can get people to various parts of the country quite quickly versus yep. before where, you know, everything's pretty much on foot or, or on horseback. So yeah, there's this level of everyone's like, okay, the technology is here. I want a piece of Africa. And then other countries are like, I want this piece. And so, the European powers are quite smart I think at this point where they all get together and they're like look every time there's a every time we try to colonize some area that hasn't been claimed yet we all end up going to war for many years and this is probably something we need to figure out so Otto von Bismarck who's the German chancellor at the time in 1884 calls a conference to bring forth all of the the players will say that have an interest in in Africa and they all basically come together to regulate the exact kind of quote was regulate and divide the African continent amongst European powers without resulting to war. It's kind of the way to put it. And so who's invited to this conference? You have 14 European countries, the United States, the Ottoman Empire, which is essentially quite, it's on the decline at this point and eventually ceases to exist after World War one, but it is still, you know, Turkey, parts of the Middle East into parts of Eastern Europe as well, like Southeastern Europe. So they're all invited, but surprise, surprise, no Africans are invited to this conference. I think we know why we don't, we, the, you want, if I'm a European power, I just want to make decisions for myself and don't want anybody, you know, who's got an actual interest in this land. And no, it's, this isn't like that nobody tried. There were definitely people in Africa who tried to get to this conference and were told, no, no thanks. We don't need you here, especially in Ethiopia. There were some people who tried to get involved because they are one of the only states that managed to kind of suppress colonization Mm -hmm. until around World War II. So they all come together and they basically align on who, not so much like who's going to get what, but they kind of come up with some rules for colonization. So the recognition of the Congo free state, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail. So I won't spend too much time on that right now, but basically recognizing it as a neutral and independent state which is established by King Leopold II. Uh, rules for territorial acquisition. So it's like, if you want to take a claim at a certain spot, like you can't just come in and kick another European country out. There needs to be a basic conversation over it. This should be free trade amongst the major rivers within Africa. This is an interesting one. They said the pro, the prohibition of the slave trade. So there's to be no slave trades anywhere within Africa at this time where the Europeans are involved, which is a big shift, right? Like we've mm-hmm. just seen the US Civil War end 20 years earlier. But slavery is still very prevalent in Africa at this time. So the, the transatlantic slave trade is, is dwindling and almost non existent at this time. But on the Indian Ocean side of Africa, there is still a slave trade going on. So there's these quote-unquote Arab slave traders, which are um, mis- mostly Central and Eastern Africans who are – rounding up slaves and trading them to um, Middle Eastern countries like Amman is a big place where we're seeing a lot of slaves go, and then to other places throughout the Indian Ocean that are still growing sugar and all these cash crops. And so they're saying, okay, if we're going to come in and take over some of this land, we're going to actually have to put an effort to, to stopping slavery. Number five was protection of native inhabitants. So the conference recognizes um, that European powers are to protect native inhabitants and their property, as well as promote the development of their territory. So again, great in theory, and we'll see how that's not always followed to some very very large degrees, and then just notifying everybody that what they're doing. So it's not just like so if the Europe, so if the Portuguese show up somewhere, they don't see the French standing there. They're like, oh well, this is awkward. <laughs> we all thought we had this land, and it's just essentially a kind of a, a set of rules that come together. And I think we do see some of some good come out of this. Is you know, I think I don't want to get into a whole. This- Colonialism, good or bad, because it's, a, it depends where you're talking about and what you're talking about. And it's a, it's a really large discussion, but there is some good that comes out of it in the sense that um, there are things brought to Africa that they never had before. Like there's a, been a lot of revolution in medicine, for example. So a lot of charities are going into these countries and bringing medicines and things like that to kind of help, you know, with some just very basic diseases that need to be dealt with. But there's also this other element too of these countries are all Christian in some fashion and they're going into Africa and there's this level of, we are here to save the Africans from not getting into heaven, not being Christian. And we have to remember, like, it sounds like I kind of scoff at it and kind of laugh a little bit of like, that's just a bit silly. Like why don't, you know, let everybody live with whatever religion they want. But there's this level that we have to remember in Christianity of like, if you're not Christian and you don't kind of accept God as, as God, there's a chance that you won't go to heaven And you may either go to hell or you may, you know, some other theological response to that. And so the important thing is that a lot of these missionaries and stuff that are going in, and even these world leaders, they legitimately think they're saving these people. If we convert them to Christianity, we have now saved them and give them access to an afterlife. And so there's this like deep level of compassion almost that's coming. Like if we get in there and we convert these people, we've done more for them than they could possibly ever imagine. And so Again, some good does come out of this with some of the missionary work and all that, but then the kind of capitalistic side of this comes in where you have so much money that can be taken out of these places by these corporations that are set up. And then on top of that, you know, capitalism is really growing to a level where it's kind of almost out of control in some spots where like we used to be in a world where the king had all the money and all the power and would kind of make the decision. Now if we look at somewhere like Germany – Audubon Bismarck has to make the, you know, these massive corporations in Hamburg, for example, he has to make them happy. He has to kind of work with them because he knows that they have a lot more control than they may have had 50 years earlier. And we're starting to see that change. So there's part of this is where they definitely want more power and more prestige and more ability to gain wealth, but they also have these, these huge corporations who are like, we have a chance to grow bigger and larger. And if we don't get a piece of this, Somebody else will, and then that's also kind of the final piece. Is this is a power struggle at the end of the day? They kind of did this because, well, if if the French take Algeria and we don't, and we don't take Egypt, the French might have all of it. What if France has all of Africa? Now they have all the wealth and all the power and all this side of things. So there's a level of that too of like fear of missing out. Of well, if I don't get part of Africa, someone else is going to get it and get rich and powerful and you know gain influence. And again, like Europe is still not a stable, stable continent. We see World War One is. 35, 40 years away. World War Two happens in seventy years after that. So yep. it's always this fear of one big European country taking over and and kind of expressing their will on on everybody else. So that's kind of where things kind of come together with the Berlin Conference. But I think Richie, kind of now's now's the time when we can get into some of the maybe the nasty stuff with the Free State of the Congo and yeah. you know and our the man of the hour, King Leopold.
0: Yeah, I I just want to mention something about the Berlin conference quickly. I think it's, it's important to like, it's a shift in mentality, right? From European powers. And while you were speaking the, the, what's the quote? They just came to mind, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And there's kind of, I think there's like a sneaking kind of tension there, you know, this idea that we're, we're going in to help, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. Christianizing mission, which is, you know, sounds well and good, but we know how these things typically play out for the indigenous populations and it's not, It's definitely not in their favor, you know, um, for the majority of the time. So I think that's important to kind of, for most people to understand, including our listeners and and ourselves as well, you know, people, fans of history, like this is, you see that kind of logic and rationale across a lot of colonizing projects, you know, these kind of good intentions to help Mm -hmm. save indigenous populations and bring them out of their primitive lifestyles to, you know, Europeanize them or Christianize them to let Mm -hmm. them see the light and, sure and it doesn't usually play out very well and as you'll see in this particular context it played out you know horribly but if we if we turn the if we turn it back to kind of king leopold and how how this, how this approach kind of changed and i think you know there's a another parallel here with these kind of pseudo colonizing capitalistic companies that represent you know national desires for how to kind of ec- Ex, not not necessarily exploitative in nature in terms of what their genesis is, but to kind of work more freely than governments can to be able to extract value that you know can only be done in you know the free market with an enterprise kind of mindset, and that's where we kind of turn the turn to this idea of the International African Association. So. You know, you have the backdrop of the scramble for Africa. You have the Berlin Conference. You have European superpowers vying for control of different parts of Africa. It's being carved up against all the people, all the main European powers who are, you know, have to see at the table. So, obviously, Leopold II becomes interested in acquiring territory in Africa for himself. Makes sense, right? Symbolically speaking, it is kind of a stamp of accreditation that... You are a European superpower, you have legitimate sway and leverage, and now you have a seat at the table. So, of course, he wants, you know, a piece of Africa for himself. So, in 1876, he formed the International African Association, which claimed to be philanthropic in, in, in nature, and it was aimed, at least on paper, at promoting scientific exploration and the abolition of the slave trade. However... In reality, the organization was just a front for Leopold II's plant to colonize the Congo and colonize for the purposes of extracting the value that was in the Congo. And the main value was rubber, right? There was a lot of rubber in the Congo. You have this massive need and demand growing across Europe, you know, and the Americas now. For rubber to meet industrialization standards for for people across all walks of life, because rubber is now a massive input across many industries and the Congo is flourishing with rubber. So what happens essentially is, you know, in the matter of a few years, this regime is able to enslave the majority of the population and set quotas on, you know, how much rubber you can collect in one day. And some of the practices that they did to ensure that those quotas were met are gut-wrenching in nature. So essentially, you know, one of the examples that I came across was, you know, once the population was totally enslaved, the regime on the ground would essentially hold hostage the wives and daughters of the, of the men In in the Congo and would, you know, threaten to kill and or rape daughters, wives, sisters of these men who would then have to go meet their rubber quotas. And if they didn't meet the rubber quotas, you would risk, you know, having your female, you know, your wife, your sister, your daughter sexually assaulted or killed. And in the same vein, if you didn't meet your quota, there was this really, really horrible practice of chopping people's arms off if your quota was not met. And this was happening en masse in a very calculated and standardized way across the region at the time. And it, it's, it's quite powerful to see, like, the exploitative nature of this to be able to extract value from the Congo and how far, you know, Leopold and his regime are willing to go to essentially beat down the population for the sake of extracting every, you know, morsel of rubber and value they could from the Congo Free State.
1: Yeah, it's it's a sickening and just like, I think in the fact that it's so recent where you can see pictures of, you know, some African guy with just no hands because they've been chopped off for like, that I think is a level of like, when we think of like medieval history and stuff, again, there's a level of separation of it was 500 years ago. So that's just the way the world was. This is, you know, within a, a century that the, both of us were born in, which mm-hmm. is on another level of just, just makes it just much more terrifying and much more, you know, doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right with anybody. And like to even make things worse, I was reading something about. It, I think it was when, if if a, a Belgian or so not a Belgian, so if a Congolese soldier who again it was Belgian white, you know, lieutenant or whatever had a basically a group of Belgian soldiers and police under him. For every bullet they fired, they would have to take. The hand of the person they killed. But if they, for example, took a shot and missed, they would be reprimanded. So what essentially started happening was people were going around and hacking off people's hands and using them as almost like a currency. It was like, I need, I need some hands because I can't go back without enough hands or I'm going to get killed. And just like the, never mind the physical element of how, f- you know, messed up that is. It's the psychological damage of everyday. Mm-hmm. You go out, if you don't meet your rubber quota, if you don't bring back enough hands, that's it, you're dead. Even worse, your wife is dead, your children are dead. And you know, it we'll get into a little bit of like the what the heck was going on there to begin with. But the other thing I think is worth mentioning is this is not a Belgian colony either. This is King Leopold's yes. personal yep. property. Yep, great point. Which is very, very unique at the time. We don't really see like the King of England saying, you know, this is my personal property. So in this case, like any sort of democratic system that Belgium has at this time, technically King Leopold doesn't have to report to them. He's, it's his land. I can do essentially whatever he wants with it. And so I think that just gives this level of oversight that's just essentially non-existent, but it also puts the blame on him entirely in my eyes, right? because like yeah. if this was culpable, a, yeah, it's just your yeah. land, right? Like yeah. I would, I always say when I look at like corporations or countries, leaders still ultimately responsible, but there's a system that's in place sure. that yeah. should stop a lot of these things. But in this case, like there's no, there's no and yeah, there's yeah. just that's what it is. So yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy, right? Like, and,
0: and I think just for some broader context, so essentially we're talking about the extraction of resources and. In the, in the Congo free state, the two big ones, rubber and ivory. And, you know, what we're essentially talking about, you know, at a high level of abstraction is a enforced and brutal system of forced labor that resulted in the deaths of millions of Congolese people. And the estimates about how many people actually died during his reign is, is quite, you know, it's quite the spectrum, but I think I came across anywhere from Two to fifteen million people. let just let that sink in. Yeah. Right? Even on the even low end, the, right? Yeah, yeah, even on the low end, two million people. And, you know, I'm just going to assume the low end's wrong. Like that's mm-hmm. my gut reaction is that even, yeah. even worst case scenario, if that's the low end, I'm going to assume someone, you know, did math in a, in a very risk averse way, very mm-hmm. conservatively to put those numbers together. So I would assume it's much higher.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. I'm just taking all of it in because it's just the fact that it's all purely for. I guess it's you know classic old fashioned racism at the time. Like definitely can't walk away from this and not just saying like there's a there's a level of subhuman to this. There's a level of the Congolese are animals and we can use them to our will. Like yeah, they're treating them like you know. Oh you you can't you didn't meet your quota that's all right we can get rid of you It's like again, it's how like a you know almost treat a farm animal or something that's not you know a cow that's not producing enough milk. It's like oh you might as well just kill it and eat it or something like it's just this bizarre way of just treating humanity and again, I keep coming back to it. at this time in history you know we racism is still a thing that exists, but the level of this like treating people like like I don't even know what you could say like animals like subhuman is just. It's something that like the world, especially the Western world seemed like it had got past, um, which I think kind of goes into the, the reaction that I think we'll, we should get into a little bit of when, when the world starts to find out what's actually going on here. Um, yeah. I think before we get into that, just a, a,
0: mm-hmm. maybe a quick couple of points for our listeners to kind of really hammer this home and make it real. Cause I know some of these conversations can typically be a bit high level and it's hard to kind of grasp to see what it was actually like on the ground. When we're talking about rubber, we're talking about rubber trees. So I didn't know that actually that rubber was extracted from trees. So there's a little bit of a little factoid for our listeners. So that's where the rubber was kind of coming from. And maybe just to double down on the cruelty, because I, I, I really want people to understand how horrible it actually was. So we're talking about forced labor for these rubber quotas. Some of the practices to enslave the population, including setting villages on fire, So no one could hide setting up rape huts for the the regime on the ground. So the name that I came across, because I was kind of curious, like, and and to your point previously, like, yeah, this was King Leopold's personal property, right? So who's doing the work on the ground? They were called the force, the public. And, you know, they were notorious for the brutality that they, you know, put upon The, the population of the, the Congo free state and they were proud of it. Like there was a lot of empowerment around how brutal the force public was on the ground so far where they would have like, you know, competitions as to who chopped off more hands for, you know, whoever, you know, had brought in less or more rubber. Um. It's, it's crazy. Like it's actually. Kind of nauseating to think about and that, that that same sentiment that you shared previously paul about this kind of subhuman dehumanizing you know reality that exists with this level of of cruelty we had talked about it offline but i think it's worth mentioning just quickly here this idea of the human zoo which oh. was exactly yeah exactly uh, which they held in belgium Which was essentially, you know, and it's not just Belgium. There are other examples. I'm not going to name them because I don't know them off the top of my head, but a quick Google will definitely get you those results because I don't want to throw anyone, you know, under the bus (laughs) unnecessarily. Uh, But if you're interested in learning more about it, feel free to Google it. But this idea of the human zoo where in Belgium they would kind of take people from the Congo Free State and put them on an exhibit so Belgians could kind of go look and see from a distance what these primitive beings looked and acted like in their natural state that doesn't hammer at home you know like this this level of you know european superiority versus you know african primitivism i don't know what else could
1: yeah i think like something that when i heard that it's two things that come to mind one is like thinking like any sci-fi movie where aliens take humans and put them into zoos or do experiments on them. It's it's such a sickening feeling to think that like any, any sentient race of whatever are doing that to another group of people, let alone people who are, you know, from the same planet and really not that far away from each other and who are exactly the same other than just skin color. Something about that just, it's like you hear about all the violence and stuff and part of me can go like, okay, I, you know, History, we talk about history. This is what we do. It's violent. It's bloody. It's terrible. And so as terrible as the Congo Free State is, part of me can go, okay, you know, it's terrible, but sometimes, you know, this is how we are as humans. Sometimes we're incredibly violent creatures. But this zoo is just another level to me of, like, it's so deliberate to, like, you can see with violence, sometimes people kind of get into, like, a group thing sort of situation, and there's a whole bunch of things that can come from violence. But to this, it's, this is just interesting. Look at these people. They're just so different, and, like, Look, yeah. how, look how they walk, look how they move, look how they talk. And it's like entertainment at that point, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I can't take that. Like it's just, That's it's too much. It's a it. Almost, yeah. Right.
0: Like it's, I, I get what you're getting. I I kind of get what you're saying. Yeah. The, it, it's, it's almost easier to rationale, rationalize the cruelty because yeah. it's happening in this, then the theater, hmm. the scramble for Africa, you know, Slavery has been abolished, but there's forced labor going on all over the place. European powers are carving up Africa. So it's not to say it minimizes what King Leopold and the, forced, the public yeah. did, but it it kind of toes the same line, right? It is yeah. on the same spectrum of what else is going on. Yes, it is a uh, horrid example of what's going on because it is at the extreme of the spectrum, but it still exists within that kind of box of what is going on at the yeah. time within that particular setting. Whereas the human zoo, this idea of kind of putting people on exhibition, the spectacle around looking at the other as this primitive being, there's something a bit more guttural about it because it's not trained soldiers or militia that this is aimed for. This is a spectacle for your ordinary
1: person to go see how these primitive beings live. Yeah. And it's like, there's, is this a family outing and stuff? Like you bring your kids. Yeah, exactly. It, like and that's the part that kills yeah. you. Right. It's like, that's, oh, what are we doing this
0: Sunday afternoon? Oh, we're going to go visit the human zoo.
1: Yeah. I think that's enough of that for me, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think, I think that that sets it home and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> un- un- unbelievable that, you know, just over a hundred years ago, that's what was still going on. And, you yeah. know, it makes looking at the two world wars and the Holocaust and all the terrible things that happen, you know you can kind of there's something deep within our nature, and I think this is a very mm. interesting conversation for us maybe to have another day on as we kind of get through more of these of this is what we're capable of as as humans and yeah how how it can just happen before, and next thing you know we're in a we're in a situation like this, but yeah I think we can we can move on to uh to kind of maybe whatever's coming next year for the Congo Free State.
0: Yeah. So I think as we kind of look forward into, you know, how this kind of becomes undone, right. And this goes back to our previous point, I I guess our previous, like our initial question as to how did he think this is actually (laughs) going to pan out? Right. Which is mystifying to me, you know, in in a world that is becoming increasingly interconnected, you have railways, you have telegraphs, you have journalists who are traveling across, you know, the African continent collecting stories, sharing those stories with Europeans. <laughs> did he honestly think that news of those atrocities and the brutality of his regime were not going to leak out? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately they did. And I personally think it's, it's quite foolish to think they never would have, right? Mm.
1: Yeah, without a deliberate effort to, like, I think of, we've talked about the Soviet Union enough in multiple episodes, is, like, this Soviet crackdown on what gets in information-wise and what gets out. Like, you need a Soviet level of information suppression to be able to um, really keep all of this contained. And he doesn't really do that. Like, we had talked about it before, like, journalists are just showing up and, like, oh, my God, like, what is happening here? And, like, this is actually, there was something that I kind of found interesting was this is, like, one of the first kind of big international stories that's broken by like mainstream journalism. So there's big articles in the New York times, for example, talking about all of this and this international reaction that comes out of it is, Oh my God, this is, this cannot happen, especially too, when you have Christian mer- uh, missionaries that are going in there with the whole intent of, you know, like we said, saving and, and helping out these people with a very generous and kind of kind intention. And then seeing all of this, like, of course this is going to get out. And I think, the international community condemning it so vividly, so quickly is maybe if there's anything good that kind of comes out of it is everybody puts their hands up right away and goes, "Oh no, this this can't happen and and it needs to stop." But I do think it's interesting how kind of the media played a, a big role into this. But like again, what was he thinking? Lock that country down, don't let anybody in because it's gonna if it's gonna get out. Like, did you think like this? Everyone was just gonna be like, "Yeah, this is this is fine." It's oh, it's it's personal property and oh, it's Africa. Who cares? Like. This is, you know, I don't know. I don't know where where he where he was going with all that.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually kind of mind blowing to think that it's hard. It's so hard to say. Right, I, mean, I think we can get into his kind of psychopathy because you know we're not by any means yeah. mental health experts, but you know we we are history junkies who do a lot of research. But <laughs> to the point about like letting journalists in and letting that information kind of leak out. There was a couple of examples that I came across in terms of people who kind of played a role in spreading that information. One was Edmund Dean Morrill. He's a British journalist who worked for a shipping company. He, he had a contract to transport goods to and from the Congo. He became suspicious when he noticed that ships returning from the Congo were empty while going to the Congo were full of supplies. He eventually discovered that the goods being transported from the Congo were rubber and ivory, obviously the two main resources that that King Leopold was interested in extracting, which were being produced through forced labor labor and exploitation of the Congolese people. He ended up, you know, writing about this and founded the Congo Reform Association, which campaigned for the end of the abuses. You have, and this is just one example, right? You have countless examples of journalists that ended up hearing and finding out about the atrocities that were going on that would eventually kind of leak out, which would, you know, bring down king leopold and you know end his reign ultimately
1: yeah and i think so kind of what i think next right the once the international community i think steps in right it, it gets handed over to belgium proper i guess and becomes yeah, in 1908 yeah yeah it becomes a typical colony i guess and that's in that sense and you know it's definitely not free and clear for the congolese at this point this is not oh it's not under king leopold's control so everything is good like Something that, that I find interesting, and if we even look at Congo today, they have I think they have the longest running civil war right now in the world. I think it's like been like 25 years or something like that. And so I I was reading about like Congo becoming independent in that. and, And something that was interesting is even up to the point where the Belgians were in control was it was still a suppression of the black population there in terms of an education perspective, for example. So think of, You know, King Leopold rolling in in 1880 roughly and then all the way to 1960 of this suppression. And then you let the country become independent. You don't have any doctors. You don't have any lawyers. You don't have any people who are educated, you know, within that system on how to run government because you've Mm -hmm. just used these people as manual laborers or low end soldiers and all the high ranking positions and all the administration that is done by Belgians. And so. We see this, like, and you have these atrocities, but then just, like, level of just, you know, we're in control as Belgium. We're not going to – we don't want to prop the the Congolese up because there's also a threat, too. Like, if we prop them up too much, they're going to start talking independence, and then that's a whole thing. Yep. And so you just see, like, this whole kind of taking over of this place and just suppressing the people from the most brutal ways to also just, like, keeping them down and then just being, like, you're free, kind of go on your own. It's just like it's a, just a terrible start to finish on, and, and yep. just really poor execution again. Like, what did they think was going to happen at the end of the day? And it I goes from King Leopold into belt into the you know the whole Belgian state itself. Yeah, it's.
0: It's really hard to kind of understand, you know, the, the handover of what happened under Leopold to, to Belgium proper in 1908 and, you know, only being done so after a major public outcry mm-hmm. across the European and even American, you know, communities to, to stop the atrocities that were going on, which, you know, we're rounding out about an hour now. And I think this brings one of our main questions that we, you know, started thinking about was, why did he do it? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of person does this? And again, we're not mental health experts, but you know, I had to go down this road because sure. I was so, oh, yeah. you know, morbidly curious as to, you know, was he a sociopath, right? Like what, when, what in, when what in a human being's mind justifies this level of cruelty and atrocities on the scale that had happened mm-hmm. and, there's been a uh, obviously this is a very hotly debated and discussed issue on whether or not King Leopold, you know, was a sociopath and the term that you know is correctly used in in you know modern context is antisocial personality disorder. you know, for his brutal exploitation of the Congo free State, you know, killed millions of people anywhere from two to fifteen through the forest label, through starvation that occurred, you know, through disease. Did he have, you know, was it a lack of empathy or concern for the feelings and welfares of others, or did he just not care about social norms? (laughs) You know, was he just naturally, you know, manipulative and exploitative, you know, a lot of historians, you know, maybe not, maybe not a lot, I'll say many historians have pointed to Leopold's behaviors as actually being evidence of antisocial personality disorder. Um, Because he was kind of known, obviously, in hindsight uh, for his cruelty and indifference toward the Congolese people. But it's hard to kind of parse that out, right? Is that an antisocial personality disorder trait or is that just a sign of the times as a European power, right? It's it's hard to kind of balance that tension up between the two. Um, Obviously, it's hard to historically diagnose people (laughs) with mental health disorders. And I think it's more complicated than that. At least from my perspective, because if you look at his cruelty in the Congo, yeah, I can see how some of his personality traits uh, potentially can be seen as having, you know, antisocial personality disorder. But we also have to consider the backdrop of his family and the setting he's growing up in. You know, he, there's this, there's this, uh, the royal, you know, monarchical rule that's going on across Europe, highly competitive. Highly ambitious where success is measured in terms of power and wealth. However, and this is where it gets (laughs) super interesting is that, you know, some of the historical documents and research show that he was a very solitary and unhappy child who lacked emotional support from his parents. Later in life, he was very introverted and secretive in nature and had very few close personal relationships which to me
1: sounds like a recipe for disaster yeah especially when you're running a country and a and a whole and and you have an entire chunk of africa essentially as your backyard and i think it just goes to like the level of like you seeing like the solitary piece and like living in that royal environment where you're not maybe getting you're not seeing the traditional family love that maybe a normal family would see right like and maybe that was just a thing like for someone like him not growing up with a lot of empathy and and not really being able to express it in in one sense I think there's also an element of and we talked about it a little bit at the beginning you were kind of saying like this like having a colony was a stamp right and we talked about yeah. Belgium being this new neutral state that's not supposed to really mess around with much. Just kind of do their own thing and be a passerby. This is a way to legitimize, legitimize him and say, yep. like, you have this huge area of land, and then you're just getting ridiculously rich. And I think again, old fashioned greed is going to come into this as well, right? Like, yep. if the money's pouring in. People are telling you things aren't great, but the money's good. So, why ask any questions, right? And it may, it may not have been that he was necessarily this like dark and evil person. He may just have just. Kind of just turned a blind eye to everything. and was just a really weak person at the end of the day as well, where he's just, I don't care what's going on. I got my money coming in. I don't want to know more about that. Let's, let's talk about something else. And maybe there's a, a balance of both there, but again, we'll never know for sure. But I think, yeah, there was, there's definitely multiple things compiling to, to see who this, this person was in Cause like, I think a, a strong leader who's able to understand the political arena at the time would not have, been, would have, as soon as caught wind of this, would have either buried it, or shut it down because yeah. letting it continue freely is essentially a suicidal decision for, for your whole enterprise at this point. Yep. It's a dark period of history, right? I think
0: the annals of history, as much as there is good, there is a lot of violence and yep. a lot of bloodshed. And I think this particular era is, is, is truer than most. Um, Specifically because it's in the modern era and it's not too far removed from our present day that it kind of hits a little bit differently. And that that is no way, you know, a a pass for what happened. This is just an extreme example of, you know, what was going on at the time.
1: Yeah. And I think there's extremes on both ends, right? We see this yeah. there's this is the extreme of the violence in the this, you know, looking at people as some human in that, but then there's also, you know, you look at the good things that were happening at that time. And there were things on that extreme end, which, you know, were unthinkable 20, 30 years before. So exactly. That's, that's the, the great thing about history, right? Is we, yeah. we see these peaks and valleys and it's, it's messy, but it can also be beautiful at the same time. But, yeah. um, this one I think was, yeah, definitely a, a valley and deep down in that valley of just the worst that humanity can, can do to one another. And yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Closing thoughts maybe is just, this was hard, I think. and I This think, was hard. Yeah. yeah. This is not just, you know, going back to like, this is the first time I think we've chatted where I've almost like been lost for words when, when we talk about some of these atrocities. Cause what can you say? Right. It's, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's hard
0: to relate to. It's hard to fathom. And we live in, we live in an era where It's it's just so hard to imagine anything like this happening in the modern day. Right. And then you get this kind of gut check when you look at the dates and you're like, oh man, we're not too far removed from this. And that, you know, it makes it real. I think that's what makes it scary. And that is kind of what, why I think, you know, these conversations are powerful because it provides a lot of lessons learned. It shows you how despicable people can be towards one another for, you know, whatever rationale that they can conjure up the mental gymnastics required. People can do it Mm -hmm. to justify, you know, their means to an end. And I think it's important for us to kind of understand the depravity and darkness that kind of exists Mm -hmm. in the annals of history, uh, specifically in this era. uh, Because I think, you know, if we don't learn from
1: history, we are doomed to repeat it. And I think that's kind of why we do this. I think that's a fantastic way to, to kind of wrap it up. And just, again, this is why history is so important and I think why we love it so much. So yeah, I hope, I hope this didn't ruin your day listening to this, to all the listeners out there, but I hope you learned something because I think this is one of those things where it's, it sucks to hear about, but we have to, again, like you said, we have to understand it so we make sure it never happens again. So yeah, I we'll guess share your uh, episode next week. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna we gotta find like who is this the most happy person and did all these wonderful things, but uh yeah, to to balance it out. But yeah, this is a this is a good conversation, Richie. Again, appreciate it as always, and uh, thank you to everybody uh, for listening. We will see you uh, next time.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the History in Motion podcast. We appreciate your support. And if you're a fan of what you heard, please like, subscribe, and share. And we'll see you next time.